This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. My name is Steve English and as ever on the Paddock Pass Podcast, I'm joined by David Emmett, Adam Wheeler. Oh, oh, there's no Neil Morrison on this week's show. That's a bit, <laughs> that's a bit unusual. Neil's always been an ever-present. David, what, what's happened to Neil? Um, uh, apparently, he's uh, driving a van um, around the streets of Barcelona looking for a home. Ah, so Adam's basically said that uh, he's the king of Barcelona and uh, now Neil needs to find somewhere else. That's how it was, Adam. Yeah, but listen, like getting married, having a kid, moving apartment. I mean, there's still no excuse for missing a podcast. I mean, I know they're big milestones in your life. That's a lot to happen in a week, though, if that if that all happened to Neil, to be honest. All, all that on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> To, to be honest, though, a lot of the time, uh, just not being arsed is a good enough excuse not to be on the podcast. But uh, for for us, at least, we've got a lot to talk about this week. We've got uh, the Patronus Yamaha launch. Obviously, Valentino Rossi joining the team this year alongside Franco Morbidelli. Bit of change in there and uh, a lot of interesting tidbits from it. But, Dave, I've got to ask you, one of the biggest things this week was you're not actually going to go on TikTok and, and be a lip syncer, are you? <laughs> uh, no, no. It, but it, I mean, it just seems like um, I was listening to a comedy podcast and saying that somebody was, um, I think Nish Kumar was saying that his cousins have started a, uh, a TikTok channel where they just lip sync his uh, stand-up co- comedy routines. So uh, I thought, you know what, that'd be great if someone did that for um, uh, uh, for rider debriefs. But then I thought, no, I'm uh, I'm a 56-year-old man. I don't know what TikTok is. I have to say, Dave, it wouldn't be great if someone did that from uh, the debriefs. And uh, what about yourself? It's been pretty busy for you. You were you were busy today, actually, weren't you? Yeah, I was uh, riding the new Husqvarna Svitpilen. I don't know how you say that exactly. The 125. Um, and in cl- Thank you, Dave. Svartpilen. I was uh, actually involved a visit to Rocco's Ranch, which is um, a little, uh, for people that don't know or don't uh, follow too many MotoGP riders' uh, social media channels, it's uh, an off-road facility that's actually really impressive it's been uh, renovated in the last couple of years and it's right next door it's a stone's throw literally from um montmelo the circuit to catalonia circuit to barcelona catalonia and uh, we did some flat track down there so that was the first time uh, doing some of that coached by uh, ricky cardus so um fantastic experience uh, very tiring um didn't crash uh, made the kit pretty dirty and uh, yeah had a wait of a time so it's been it's been good can't lift my arms now though all right, that's fine. Well, we usually put it put our hands up to be able to say when we want to speak. So, David, it'll just be myself and yourself talking <laughs> about uh, Patronus Yamaha. And uh, we've got a lot to cover with Patronus. So, obviously, they've launched their project for this year across all three classes as well. It's taken three days to be able to uh, get through the launch. As we're talking now, we're still waiting for some of the last interviews. But, uh, David, there was a lot that came from it. Obviously, Razlan, the team principal, just talking in terms of the future for the team and uh, what's going to happen with them and Yamaha going forward. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, th- there's been this talk of, because obviously um, MotoGP teams are on a five-year contract. Uh, so uh, everything is on uh, five-year contracts. Uh, we're currently in the in the final year of uh, the previous contract and what Dorna do is they sign all of the teams up for five years all of the factories up for five years everyone gives a five-year commitment the factories get a commitment that the technical regulations will remain as stable as possible in all that time uh, so we don't uh, you know suddenly go from via from from four-cylinder four strokes to uh, eight-cylinder turbo diesels 
um, uh, as a cost-cutting measure. It also gives stability to the teams. The teams sign up and then they get a guaranteed income from Dorna um, for the for the year. I think something like two point million per rider. Uh, two point something million per rider um, uh, per season. Uh, so it's just basically to ensure the stability of it. Um, but that means that at the end of all, all of these uh, five-year contract periods, the next one is for twenty for twenty twenty-two to twenty twenty-six. Uh, the end of twenty twenty-six. Um, the Teams are the, the the satellite teams, the independent teams are free to uh, talk to other factories about you know who do they want to get their bikes from? Uh, do they want to stick with their current supplier? Like we saw with Tech Three, who switched from uh, Yamaha to KTM, um, and uh, obviously there's the, the there's a lot of talk, especially with uh, the VR46 team coming in, likely to come in in, in 2022. Who would get the Yamaha? Uh, the Yamaha satellite bikes. Uh, Valentino Rossi has a really, really long relationship with Yamaha. Um, uh, the VR46 Academy is tied to Yamaha. They, they use Yamahas. They use Yamahas at the ranch for flat track, but they also use, uh, R6s and R1s, uh, around the, um, Misano circuit, for example. Um, and so if the VR46 team were to come in and start using Ducatis, that would be, uh, quite difficult because of this very strong tie to uh, to Yamaha. So, um, uh, but Petronas currently have the contract, and they are. I mean, despite some difficulties at, uh, at the beginning, they're they're, they're keen to carry on. Um, uh, talk started in December last year about uh, about carrying on about signing on for another for a for the next five years as the Yamaha satellite team um uh, Raslan Rosali said you know we want to do this also they talked a, a little bit about um seeing Yamaha more or seeing the Petronas team more like a junior team in the uh, in the same way that uh Pramac is uh so because Petronas have Moto3 Moto2 and MotoGP um, they can actually, they actually have a path all the way through from, uh, from the junior classes to, to MotoGP. And what I found interesting was also that, uh, Raslan said, you know, we can also look outside of the, uh, um, uh, even outside of the Grand Prix paddock. So to Japanese superbikes, for example, to the Asian Talent Cup, uh, looking for other routes through into MotoGP and, and broadening the appeal. Just to jump in, I think, um, the situation with Petronas Yamaha SRT, uh, Spang Racing Team, of course, is, is there, there are an interesting crossroads. Um, you know, Raslan Rosali has some negotiating to do over the next few weeks, not only for the manufacturer that's going to supply the team, but also the contract with Dorna. And uh, he also mentioned that their principal sponsor, Petronas, their deal is up at the end of 2021 as well. So, you know, he's got three big deals to sort out in the next couple of months, you would think. But apart from like that business side and, and which would affect the stability in the future direction of the team. Um, you know, they obviously have the, an icon of motorcycling in their current rider roster and they have, uh, an Italian, we'll get around to talking about the guys, I guess in a minute, but then with Franco Morbidelli, they have somebody who they believe or who commented on this week that they feel could be a, a, you know, a challenger for the 2021 title. So, you know, they're in a very strange situation of um, having quite a few chess pieces on the board, I guess you could say, um, and how 
you know, they a relatively new team is suddenly a, a little bit of a powerful one in the MotoGP paddock. Yeah, and I think it, it is that power structure that they have had that for me is really interesting because obviously Sepang are behind them, Petronas are behind two massive companies. But whenever you've got a team in all three classes that could be a contender in all three classes as well, it's very different to whenever you had this kind of situation in the past where you might have had someone that was fast in Moto3, struggling in Moto2, and at the back end of the grid in MotoGP. But all six riders for the Petronas team this year, they're all going to expect to be able to win races. That gives Raslan an awful lot of bargaining power at the, at the table with whether it's Yamaha, whether it's Dorna, whether it's with potential sponsors. And uh, Dave, that actually leads into a question that we got from one of our patrons. MJ Perez asks us how Yamaha will structure their efforts in 2021 and whether we'll see a repeat of the older bike for Franco or whether we'll see all the bikes being the same spec. Um, yeah, no, uh, Franco Morbidelli is going to be on a, t- on, well, shall we call it a 2000? We'll, f- for shorthand, we'll call it a 2019 spec bike. Um, uh, Valentino Rossi and the two factory riders, Maverick Vinales, Fabio Quartararo, will be on uh, 20, uh, 2020 uh, spec bikes, although they won't actually be 2020 bikes. There'll be a 2020 engine in um, in quite a different frame, which is closer to the 2019 frame because we saw last year the 2019 frame was simply better than the than the 2020 frame. It was much more adaptable. Um, uh, so that stays the same. One of the reasons that is staying the same is because um, simply. Yamaha didn't have the um, uh, manufacturing capacity also because of the um uh, because of the, the the pandemic we didn't actually get started until July and normally if Yamaha had wanted to produce a uh, um uh, another 2020 bike they would have had to have sort of known by may april may at the latest i think june at the latest when i've talked to people about when people need to know uh or what bikes they'll be getting for next year they'd really need to know by the first of june um and uh, so it was really too late for, for for any decision to be made so the decision was already made at uh, at the start of uh, at the start of the 2020 season that that franco would be on the uh, uh the the 2019 bike for 2021 as well um Honestly, there's not going to be that much difference. He will be getting updates through the year. Um, uh, Razzle Razali made that clear that they'd be getting uh, new parts and it was also something they were going to be pushing for both uh Razzle Razali who is the team principal and uh Johan Stiegerfeld who is the team uh director who oversees all three teams uh in all three classes uh, said you know they were going to push Yamaha to get parts faster you know when parts are available they're going to be pushing to get parts uh, uh, updates faster and there should be more parts sort of interchangeable also because the, the you know the, the the 2020 chassis is going to be more like the 2019 chassis and so there should be more parts uh, uh, sort of interchangeable between the two I mean, I think it's a good question on the structure because it's a little convoluted. I mean, as we mentioned before, Petronas have this uh, fantastic pathway through the classes, and that means their operations is incredibly streamlined, which by turn also increase some of the pressure on the riders because, you know, they have people in close proximity who could take their place if they're not performing, whereas in other manufacturers, maybe say like KTM, that's a little bit more splintered between the AO camps and some of the Moto3 teams. Um, and where it gets kind of complicated and where Patronus hold the the cards of like power, if you like, is 
you know, in their dealings with Yamaha, there's three riders that are contracted to Yamaha, which is Rossi, Vinales, and Quattararo. Morbidelli actually has a deal with the team. Now, if Morbidelli, again, outperforms the factory riders, then, you know, that also leaves Petronas in a very strong position where Yamaha's best rider is not essentially one of their own. So it could be um, quite interesting, uh, for want of a better word, on how... Patronus uh, negotiate their position with the Japanese um, and also how they kind of uh, open their shop window to say, Suzuki, come and get us or or how, how that turns out. Yeah, but it, it really seemed from everything that, uh, that Razlan was saying that they were very interested in staying with Yamaha, uh, but they just wanted to be, um, uh, to have their position strengthened. He said, you know, sometimes we felt more like paying customers than partners. And, um, this is something, you know, in the past when I've talked to, um, uh, when I've talked to Hervé Pontral when he was Tech 3 Yamaha still, when he was dealing with Yamaha, he said, you know, we gave them money, they gave us bikes, and that was it. Uh, and they, they felt a little bit sidelined. And it seems like there is, they are working much, much more clo- uh, closely together. Um, I think also we saw that, especially in 2020 with Fabio Quartararo, when Quartararo was already a semi factory rider um that there was more direct involvement with uh, from from Yamaha and now especially with Valentina Rossi coming into the Patronus it's going to be even you know e- even closer and you know Frank Marbidelli frankly he starts the uh, 2020 season i mean you know who's going to who's going to be champion in 2021 uh, the, the 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 favorites are going to be um Jack Miller uh, Alex Rintz, Juan Mir, um, and uh, Fra- uh, Franco Morbidelli. And then after that, uh, you know, maybe Mark Marquez, if he's depending on whether he's fit or not. Um, uh, yeah, maybe Fabio Quartararo, if he's, is he fine? So it, it starts to get, um, you start to see that like the, the center of power has shifted a little bit towards the, um, uh, towards the, the Patronus team. Yeah. And they've just, in light of what you're asking there, and obviously we're going to talk about Franco in detail in a wee while, but you mentioned there that if you were listing your favourites, you'd have Franco down before the likes of Quattararo. This is going to be a very different season for Franco, though, because there's a lot of expectation on him. And we saw what happened with, say, Fabio last year, where with that expectation comes pressure and comes a very different end result compared to what had happened the year before. Is there any risk that uh, Franco could be the same? Well, I asked him that um, uh, today, and he said um, he didn't think so. He felt because 2019 was such an important year for uh, 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 for Morbidelli because it was, um, you know, he got shown up by his teammate. You know, his rookie teammate came in and really showed him up, and that made that turned Franco Morbidelli around. Um, he realized that he had to work harder during the off season, you know, he had to train harder. Um, uh, he had to focus more. He had to just focus on bikes. Um, he said he saw the rewards of that over the off season in, uh, or he saw that the rewards of the hard work we should put in, in the off season, uh, over 2019, 2020 in 2020. And that really motivated him to do the same in, in for 2020, 2021. Um, and the other, th- the other big difference is that he is uh, 25, 26. 
um, which is a very different age to Quattararo. I mean, Quattararo was 20 last year and it was, um, what is it, 2021? Um, I think he got away from himself. And Franco Morbidelli has won a championship. That's, I think, another big, big difference. He knows how to win. He knows what it means to win a race. He knows what it means to win a championship. He knows about the pressure. Uh, it's not completely new. Whereas Quartararo dominated in uh, the Spanish championship, came into Moto3, had uh, the occasional good race, um, had the occasional good race in Moto2, um, but only really found his feet in, in MotoGP, and he's still very, very young. And, Ad, what about you? What do you see happening between that kind of dynamic for Franco the change for this year obviously we've seen this a lot of times in different championships that the second year can be tough some riders adapt really well to that pressure some riders struggle a bit with it Franco looks like a guy that's got his head very well screwed on seems to take a, a very big picture view on everything that's obviously going to be something that's going to be a big help for him I think yeah you're absolutely right there Steve I mean he seems one of the most laid back and level headed riders in the paddock and you only have to compare him to some of the histronics from his teammate uh, last year you know uh, to see that you know Morbidelli has very much kind of that uh, maturity um, and that kind of collected ability to stand back and analyze himself and as they pointed out you know, he's won a championship. Um, and, you know, I can remember Valentino Rossi um, when being asked to comment on Peko Bagnaia and, you know, also Morbidelli, who was his first world champion to come out of the VR46 Academy. You know, he said that Morbidelli had, you know, the he had the ability and the fighting character, whereas like Peko Bagnaia had more of the raw kind of talent. That was how he he couldn't compare or contrasted the two riders. I mean, Dave mentioned that 2019, you know, Franco was humbled and realized he had to come back a, a more competitive package. But, you know, we have to remember it was still just his second year in the class. Um, his first, you know, was on sort of the, you know, the Mark VDS Honda where he also broke his wrist. So, you know, I think his career trajectory is is really kind of on point for, you know, how you would expect a rider to come into the class. I mean, we harped on already about someone like Taka Nakagami, um, you know, and it's whether it's his time to really start showing some potential just as Franco did in 2020. Yeah, I think you also can't underestimate the fact, the motivation which uh, Franco gets from uh, being on a 2019 bike. It gives him an underdog and that sort of underdog feeling, that sort of, um, that can really motivate you. You know, when you, you, when you've got that sort of, it's not fair. They've all got the new kit and I haven't. Uh, he said, yeah, it's motorcycle racing is, uh, um, um, it's about man and it's about the human and it's about the machine. And he said, I, I hope I can make the human part count. Uh, count more and being an underdog having already one strike against you it makes people it pushes people to greater heights it makes people work harder yeah i would ask adam then as well because obviously dave me and you are in beautiful light because we've spent money on a lighting kit ad do you feel that because you're using the older spec you've just got your laptop that maybe you're feeling a bit left (laughs) behind now you've got that underdog spirit can you sympathize with frank yeah i've got just got a little bit extra in the pocket, Steve. You know, when I stand up and start busting out a TikTok routine <laughs> that's going to make Dave envious, you guys are going to know it. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, but, let, uh, let's let's play in some of what Franco was talking about just in terms of what he's expecting for the coming year. And we'll see then if you can lip sync over that ad. I will try to, to do similar results 
then last year uh, I I've been working exactly as, as last year, if not better. So I will try to to make the same uh, the same performances on track. I will try to bring the same uh, same stuff that I brought last year on track. I have more knowledge in in myself. I have more trust in myself. I have more trust in the package and knowledge in the package, given the fact that the the package is going to remain the same. So everything is uh, is uh, a little bit more known than than last year. So everything has room for development. Um, apart from uh, from the package, so I will try to to do the same results as last year. Last year I did a a very good season, and towards the end of the season, I I was able to to feel great with the bike and to be able to attack and and. Uh, squeeze the the things and the performance um at the level that wasn't wasn't expected uh by anyone so it's um it's my duty and it's my job to to replicate that feeling and to replicate that performance so if i'm able to replicate that feeling and that performance i will be able to to fight again or for the championship or for important positions in the championship and not just in uh, single races. That's my job, that's my duty, and that's what I will try to do and that's what I want to do. I know that <clears throat> it's not just about human, it's also about machine, but I also know that uh, the gap between my machine and everybody else's, well, not everybody else's, but every other factory is not as big as it was as it would have been if it was uh, a normal uh, if it were normal two seasons these are particular two very strange seasons and and the development of of the bikes is not going forward so fast and as fast as it was a normal one so i hope and i think that the gap um if there is a gap and if there was a gap has remained similar or same to last year so i hope that it's going to be just about human side and um i i really trust on on that side and on that matter so i will try to make a good job Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And as we could hear there from Franco, just giving us his thoughts on what he expects for this year. And obviously talking a bit about the motivation that he finds for the coming season. We've already talked about that. But I wanted to ask you now, Dave, just where you really expect to see Franco make a step forward. Because listening to what he's talked about, listening to what you were saying earlier on, Franco actually reminds me an awful lot of Jack Miller. When Jack made a big step forward, where you know it wasn't about relying on talent, it was about looking at Cal Crutchlow in particular and seeing the value of training hard, working hard. And I remember I, I was interviewing Jack, it would have been Qatar 2019 maybe, and he was saying about 
how basically it was only in the last few years that he really started to pay attention to his diet. He was looking at vegetables rather than just eating. And he had made a big step forward in that regard. And that was really where we saw him make his progression to being more consistent, maybe just taking out the peaks and troughs and just having that steady run through. Frank has obviously done that as well. But a bit like Jack, there is that inherent pressure now to really be able to go out there, win races and put together a title challenge. Uh, yeah, but like I say, I don't think uh, I don't think he really feels uh, any more pressure than normal. Um, he gave us uh, an absolute masterclass in all sorts of perspective today, talking about um, uh, about racing, saying you know it's uh, what is it? It's just a game. Uh, it's an important game, but it is to, you know it's just a game. There are there, there are things that there are things bigger than that. The human side is more important than games. This is just a game, he says. Um, so yeah, he 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 sees this. Uh, Having that sense of perspective, we talked about this with, with Shuan Mir as well, uh, ha- having this sense of perspective, knowing that there is um, more to life than racing. I mean, racing is, racing is important, but there's more to life than just racing. And being able to place that in, respect, in, in perspective gives you some context for your racing. It actually makes it easier to be um, – competitive to absorb the uh, you know to, to absorb the blows to take the blows to take um uh, when when bad things happen you can it's easier to take a step back put it into perspective and then move forward again and i think that's um that sort of maturity is what you because you re- i mean you see races get better with age you see them when they're 26 27 uh, i think i once actually counted the age did a, did an average age of uh, when people were world champion throughout the entire history of the of the sport and 26 27 28 was when the most people won their championships so being around that age bracket which is i think uh, jack miller um uh, also uh, franco morbidelli uh, also maverick vinales uh, I, I i you know that's when races really come into their own well, that's in and around Neil's age, so it's just a shame he's not with us this week. But uh, Dave, I'm quite confused though because I thought that everything other than racing was just waiting. Surely that meme is correct because it gets shared so much. Like Franco's got to be wrong on this. He you can't take that kind of perspective and expect to be competitive. Surely. Well, it is um, it is quite funny that uh, the um, uh, the the quote about. Um, uh, racing is life. Everything else is waiting. Is from Steve McQueen, who was extremely famous for being an actor <laughs> and being very impatient. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he's an actor. What did he do? What did he? What did he earn his fame and his money with? He earned his fame and money with with acting. That was what he was best at. Uh, and racing Pretending. was just a hobby for. Yeah. The, 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 but racing was just a hobby for him. So um, it's easy for him. It's easy for him to say. You know, r- races. There are, I mean, there are really driven races. Mark Marquez, Mick Doohan, incredibly intensely driven races. Um, but you also see races who are incredibly driven and intense and never make it because they're so, um, uh, they're so focused on racing that they can never take a step back and, uh, and relax. And, um, you know, they're always responding to what's happening now instead of, Going over for you know, looking at the longer term, looking at looking at a championship instead of just you know what's happening this lap, what's happening this race. 
Yeah, I remember I was actually, I interviewed writers about that at one stage, Dave, and one of the best answers I got for it was from Alex Lowe's. And Alex said that he used to always, after a bad weekend in particular, he'd train you know, twice as hard as ever. You'd pound yourself into the ground like all writers do. And you then realize as you get older that it didn't actually help you improve. And I think it was maybe in uh, after Hareth 2019, so himself and uh, Johnny Ray have a clash the last corner. It ends up basically being what cost him his factory Yamaha contract. And instead of going back to England after the race and, you know, being pissed off for two weeks and using that as like the motivation that everyone sees as the fire that comes out in a rider, Alex got back to England on the Monday and Monday night he flew out to Portugal to go golfing for a couple of days because he needed to get away from it and he needed to be able to focus on what was important and as riders get older and as they mature they realize that yeah you can use that motivation you can use that to really give you that fire to train hard and everything like that but it doesn't always give you the end result sometimes you can hold on to it for too long and sometimes you need to just be able to smell the roses see what you've got and that really does seem to be Franco's biggest strength is that he's gone through hard times he's come through from you know, they couldn't afford to put him on a Moto3 bike, go to the Spanish Championship. He'd come through Stock 600. He had to then come through with, you know, back, not back of the grid teams, but teams that were struggling at the times. Italtrans weren't the team that they are that won the championship last year. They were a team that was struggling in Moto2 whenever Franco got in the bike. I think it was as a wild card at uh, Misano. And he came in and he had to really fight his way up through the grid. And whenever he got his chance with Mark VDS, he took it with both hands. And then obviously he struggled initially in MotoGP, but now he's really been able to show what he can do. And that's where, you know, for, I think for everyone, they're looking at Franco as being one of the most interesting riders to look at this year. But also it's, a, it's an interesting situation because not only is he expected to deliver the goods, arguably, but um, he's next to, you know, the, the biggest personality champion icon that MotoGP has ever seen. So he's going to have to, again, step out of some sort of shadow uh, and establish his own kind of credentials once more. But I think, um, you know, when, when it comes to Franco's career prospects, I mean, he must be looking at himself thinking, right, you know, I have uh, the goal to achieve and to do my best and, you know, any other cliche for 2021. But you'd have to think he's eyeing one of the factory Yamaha saddles. I mean, you know, he, uh, if I was Vinales, I'll be having a little bit of a look over my shoulder because, you know, those uh, former teammates could be linking up again on, on factory Yamahas. Um, you know, if, if uh, Patronus end up changing to Suzuki uh, or, you know, Morbidelli's going to get headhunted by another, another factory. I mean, he, he's in a position really to, you know, when he's considering his career and for 2022, he knows the next six to eight months are going to be pretty crucial. Yeah, and I think that's what's one of the key things as well, Ad, because it is going to come down to, obviously we talked already about how you know, it looks like Patronus now are going to stay with Yamaha. That was one of the big sticking points. But definitely for another manufacturer, they're going to have to look at Franco and they're going to have to be interested in him. And David, if you're looking at it from the perspective of Honda, or you're looking at it from the perspective of pretty much all the major manufacturers, whether you're Ducati, you know, there's question marks about what's going to happen with them going forward. Who's going to be their top rider? Obviously, if you're Suzuki, you're going to try and hold on to Mir for as long as you can. KTM, we've seen go very young with Binder and uh, Miguel Oliveira. So they're going to be fairly well set going forward. Obviously, you could have openings at Tech 12. But if you're the, the likes of a Franco Morbidelli, you're going to want to be on the full factory bike at some point. 
And those other manufacturers are going to be circling him. If he gets off to a strong start next year, all the all the questions about Vinales are all going to start up, and it's going to be really tough for Yamaha. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why um, uh, Franco Morbidelli is signed directly with the Petronas team and not with Yamaha, um, because Petronas saw uh, sort of at the start of the season last year that there was interest in Franco Morbidelli, um, that uh, people were already taking a look at him and thinking about him and um, uh, starting to talk to him and, and trying to uh, poach him. And so uh, Petronas decided, okay, look, we've got to sign him. So they, you know, Bruno, they they basically um, uh, stepped in and said, okay, here's a contract for next year, but it's directly with us, um, because they were uh, they were afraid of it uh, of of someone stepping in. And if you, I mean, who would come in to take them? You would have to say a team like Ducati or a team like Honda. Um, certainly like Repsol Honda, you know, Paul is going to have a year. If Paul doesn't, we've talked about this before on the podcast. If Paul doesn't step in and beat, um, step up and beat Alex Marquez, um, uh, on the Honda, then Repsol are going to be looking at uh, Paul and saying, you know, what about Franco? Franco, uh, uh, Franco finished ahead of him in the, in the championship. So yeah, uh, and again, Ducati, Ducati are desperately looking for someone to come in and, and win a championship for them. Um, they thought it might have been Maverick Vinales, which is why Maverick Vinales signed up to uh, signed up to Yamaha uh, so very early in 2020. You know, basically like the first or second week of January, I think he signed his contract. Um, and so yeah, they're they're going to be. You have to be. You have to think that Ducati will be circling uh, uh, Vinales, maybe, but maybe also Morbidelli. They might decide. All right, no, Morbidelli's looking good, so uh, let's let's see what he's up. And I also think that Morbidelli has the kind of character who could uh, actually cope with the pressure inside the Ducati garage. He's you know he can cope with the, with that sort of hectic uh, environment. And Adam, it's interesting for Patronus as well because there's other factors at play. We've already talked about you know, the power that they could potentially have going to negotiate and table with sponsors now that Rossi's on board. But one of the biggest things that they have as well is that the COVID situation really did actually help them. Johan Stigefeld was talking about how the fact that they were able to save relative money compared to a normal season. That gives them a little bit more in their pot to be able to pay Franco as well, potentially keep him on board. So it, there are a lot of factors that could work in Franco's favour. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, after the first two races in Jerez, you know, the team might have been looking at their win bonus payments and thinking, oh, this could be a, a touchy season. But you know, and, uh, Fabio helped uh, pull the purse strings towards the end of the season. But then Franco stepped up. So, you know, like we said before, Yamaha, the winningest manufacturer for 2020. Um, and Dave had a fantastic article on his website, motormatters.com. Uh, I'm getting in a plug because you boys were nice enough to plug me on the last episode. Uh, you know, just giving a fantastic overview on Yamaha's picture generally in, in MotoGP. So definitely go and uh, and read that. I think it's it clocks in at an even twelve thousand words, so it should take about an hour <laughs> it of your was, time. But yeah, uh, but it, it was just the article that I would have uh, written for you if I wasn't limited uh, for to just eight hundred words in your magazine. Uh, um, <laughs> see, if you would if you would give me a, a nice a nice twenty five page spread ad. <laughs> <laughs> can i can i just wrap up almost like the, the franco subject by saying it's 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 pretty cool that 
you know, the last five Moto2 world champions are now in MotoGP. Um, and with Tito Rabat kind of exiting stage left, you know, that, that would have been the sixth rider. So with Enea Bastianini coming into the class as well, um, you know, that that championship for all of its criticisms um, and, you know, for some of the welcome diversity from the the, the engine manufacturer switch and Franco was the last Honda uh, Moto2 world champion, don't forget. So there's a nice little link for HRC if they ever want to look at it. Um, you know, it's, it's it has pushed some quality talent uh, into, into, the, into the MotoGP. Yeah, and I think that's where like Moto2, especially last year, and with the switch to Triumph Engines the year before, we saw that there was a big change where there was more interest in the class, there was more coming through. And I think that, you know, on the basis of what we saw last year, Moto2 was probably just as competitive as any other class, and that hadn't been the case for the years before. But the guys at the top of the class were always quality riders. You don't win a world championship by fluke anyway. But all those riders at the front of the field, whether you're looking at the Francos, Peco, Alex Marquez, they were all at the front for a reason. And even though the likes of Marquez might have had inconsistencies during his time in Moto2, we did always see him have those flashes. And now that they're all coming through into MotoGP, it does show that that, that uh, line does work, whether it's from Moto3 to Moto2 to MotoGP. And that's, that's got to be a big positive. And that you know, goes back to what we were talking about at the start of the show, Dave, where we talked about that line that uh, Petronas now have, right from you know, Binder and McPhee in Moto3, Dixon and Vieira in uh, Moto2 and then all the way into MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, you would have to say that um, the Petronas team has got a, a, a non-zero chance of winning all three championships uh, and they've got a very good chance of winning at least one and maybe two championships. Um, I think Moto2 class is the, is the biggest outsider. But if, if you look, for example, at Moto3, you've got Darren Bender and you've got John McPhee. Obviously, it's, it's John McPhee's last year in the, uh, in the class. Um, he has the experience. He's shown that he also has the speed. His problem was always racecraft, but that's something that he's been working on. Um, you know, being in the right place at the right time to actually win races. Um, Darren Binder is just incredibly talented, uh, and he's lost. He had a wildness to him, which meant that he was making too many mistakes. He was crashing out too often. Um, he was falling off too often. Um, we saw last year that Darren really lost uh, a little bit of that. Um, so you'd have to think that, you know, Darren is going to be a big, uh, is going to be a big challenge. Uh, Moto two, Jake Dixon, um, and, uh, uh, Javi Fierge. Um, Jake Dixon, I honestly, I mean, I have to hold my hand up. I didn't think Jake Dixon was going to do very much in Moto two, but he was genuinely impressive last year. Um, the goal there is, you know, regular podiums and 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 to try to win races. Uh, Vierge, given his history in the class, he really has to step up this year as well and uh, start winning races. And then, you know, you've got Valentino Rossi and and uh, Franco Morbidelli in in MotoGP. I mean, they're both. Uh, I still think I know it's a, an unpopular opinion in this part on this podcast, but I still think that uh, Valentino Rossi can win a race. Uh, and uh, I'm certain that Franco can win a race and can win a championship. Dave, you old romantic, you. <laughs> all, all I'm saying is, I mean, like, it really is so close. Everything is so close. And I'm really, uh, I'm genuinely fascinated to see how Valentino Rossi gets on in a satellite environment where there's much less, um, uh, much less pressure. And I also really think the Yamaha is going to be a much, much better bike this year. 
You just want to see him run on straight at the final tur- chicane, the the Hertima chicane at Assen, and <laughs> and you know, win at the pissing cathedral. That's that's really what you know you'd like to see, isn't it? Uh, honestly, I'm 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 easy either way, but I still I I, I genuinely I honestly think he's still got it in it. Um, certainly think uh, I think I'd rather see him win at Mugello. I think that would be um, uh, I think that would be. That would be. It would, it would be would a party, be. right? I'm just really impressed because uh, Dave, in the space of the last three minutes, you've completely wrecked the running order by answering <laughs> every question we had left for the podcast. So we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast and try and figure out what else we can talk about with the Petronas Yamaha team. Cheers for that, Dave. <laughs> Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. As ever on the Paddock Pass podcast, if you want to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where for as little as $3 a month, you can really make a big difference in being able to help us provide some exclusive content for our Patreon supporters. We've actually got quite a few new patrons this uh, this week. We've got uh, the likes of Rasmus has joined. We've also got Gareth O'Connell. We've got Alex Sodley. We've got Bernus. We've got Terry Hamill. We've got Mark Bennett. We've got uh, Tip Haranga, and uh, we've also got a couple of others as well. So a big thank you to all of our new patrons for supporting the Paddock Pass podcast. David, we've actually got in a couple of questions from our patrons. One of them relates to uh, what we're obviously going to talk about next on the show. We're going to talk about Valentino Rossi. But uh, the question that uh, comes in from Luke Pilling is, what do you think about dream rider pairings? Obviously, the Petronas Yamaha team on paper is a dream rider pairing. Two riders that profess to being best friends with one another, great relationship. Rossi's been able to bring Franco through the ranks. We've already talked about you know, being a world champion for the VO46 Academy. But the question really is, is it better to have a number one and a number two, or is it better to have two riders that view it that and they're going in on an equal footing? Um, it's, a, it's a good and a difficult question. Um, I mean... You always want rivalry, uh, but just because people are friends doesn't mean that people that that riders won't be rival uh, won't be rivals. Um, There's something Morbidelli said as well. Yeah, all right. Yes, he's my friend, um, uh, but the way that I treat him with respect is to uh, race against race as hard against him as I've always raced uh, raced against him. Um, and the point about Racers is they are competitive beasts. And so, you know, they want to try and step up. They want to try and get up to the next, uh, to, to the next level. Uh, and so they're always pushing each other and pushing each other on. I mean, you know, you've got Sam Lowe's and Alex Lowe's are a perfect example. Two, two twins who are, uh, uh, you know, when they're training together, are pushing each other on. Um, so yeah, j- just because you're friends doesn't mean you can't push each other on. I think what you don't want is a poisonous atmosphere inside a, a box where, um, the two riders are more focused on beating each other than beating the rest. Um, what you do want is, uh, 
riders who are prepared to work as a team, um, but also want to beat their teammates. That's that's quite good then, Dave, because Rossi's never had a toxic relationship with a teammate. He's definitely never <laughs> had that in the past with Yamaha. He definitely didn't go into hospitality and order massive plates of pizza and chips and sit down in front of the likes of Vinales for a few years and just like pick away at his chips until Vinales left hospitality and then Rossi would actually eat his proper dinner. He never does anything like that. So Ad, there's nothing to worry about for Petrona, surely. I mean, you know, coming back to the question, Steve, I think it it depends on your definition of a dream partnership. I mean, for me, it's the most toxic relationship possible. I mean, I don't think, you know, for for however much they made it a processional uh, show of boredom in Formula One and the Alan Prost and Ayrton Senna rivalry, you know, it was is classified as one of the sort of golden um, periods of the sport for Formula One. I mean, it sort of coincided with increased television coverage and a huge boom. Um, you know, you could say Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo and some of their spats in Yamaha was also a pretty, you know, a uh, tasty component of, of, of MotoGP fabric at that time. You know, I think, you know, there's nothing a little bit, not I want to say worse, but it seems all a bit too friendly and cosy to me if you have two best buds as teammates. I mean, Alex Marquez and Mark Marquez as teammates, I think it was fantastically unique, but I think it was also potentially very boring in terms of drama for, for the sport to, you know, to have, you know, potentially two riders that will, will not be like, you know, barging into the side of each other trying to win. Don't you mean Alex Marquez and Stefan Bradl? <laughs> well on paper dave the, yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, on paper. you know the, that's why you know until jorge lorenzo broke his wrist and messed it all up you know that that you know that that pairing there in repsol honda in 2019 had, had such fantastic potential and we were actually writing phrases like dream team mm. you know for the for the hrc boys so it's uh it, it just depends on what you think is uh, as a dream lineup and, and when it comes to patronus um, you know, I think Rossi still has something to show. You know, I think he's at the point now where he almost has to justify, I think, his his saddle. I mean, if he's a football player, he's in, in, in the sport, you know, by virtue of his shirt sales and, you know, what he brings to MotoGP. If you go to any circuit, I still think now in 2021, when fans eventually come back, you'll still see that circuits are mostly yellow. Uh, so it's, um, you know, he, he he has to warrant that ride i think i mean i don't want to stick the knife into valentino because he's been the second best rider i've i've seen on a motorcycle but um you know i think uh you know his combination there with morbidelli is is maybe veering a little bit more into the mentor role perhaps yeah i can't believe though that a man a stone's throw away from the new camp would uh, think that a football team would only have someone on based on uh, shirt sales and not uh, performance but dave (laughs) it's actually quite interesting because we did throw this open to our listeners on Twitter, we posted just asking what people expected from Rossi and Patronus in the coming year. And I, I thought one of the, probably the, one of the, the comments that really sort of gelled with how a lot of us will think about it came in from Ian Fallon. And uh, he said that he expects that the close relationship with Franco will really help them both initially. But if Rossi has a sniff of the championship, it's really going to put a strain on their relationship. And that's got to be the case because we've seen that already with Rossi in the past. And as unlikely as it is that he's able to put together 18, 19, 20 races, if he gets to the end of the season and he's got a chance of winning a championship, that's going to be very different to what he's going to talk about in the lead up to the start of the season. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. But um, uh, you said if he gets a sniff of the championship, and um, I think we can um, uh, quietly shelve that the entire discussion there because, uh, I mean, like I say, I, I really believe that Valentino Rossi can still win a race. He's still good enough for the podium, but he's not going to get anywhere near a championship because there's just too many other good riders and much stronger riders and much hungrier riders um i think franco morbidelli is going to be the, the is going to be the rider to watch in that team um and also you know valentino rossi is starting to look towards retirement um and so it's not going to matter as much if i mean like if we did get to you know valencia and it is all on the line and uh, rossi still has a chance and he has to um, sort of run Franco Morbidelli off into the uh, into turn one, then uh, you know Morbidelli or, or Rossi wouldn't hesitate, and I think that Morbidelli would hesitate the other way around. Um, he talked today about being you know doing what's just fair and right, and uh, certainly Valentino Rossi would never. Uh, um, uh, would never venture beyond the just, fair and right, of course. We've seen that in the past. He'd never uh, go out onto the grid and, um, uh, in the middle of the night and uh, put some lace and rubber down uh, <laughs> on his grid position or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, Valentino Rossi might try the mind games, but I don't, think it's going to, I don't think it's going to matter. I don't think it's going to be relevant. I don't think it's going to get anywhere. You know, we're just never going to get to that point in time. Yeah, Adam, we actually got one comment in, and uh, this came in from Johan uh, Segernas. And I think Johan might well have had Rossi as one of his bets for the Catalan Grand Prix last year, because what he says is top fives, maybe a podium, probably falls off when he's got a chance of a win. And unfortunately for Rossi, we saw last year, obviously, the first Jerez race was one of the darkest moments of Rossi's career, really. It was on a par with what we saw in the couple of years with Ducati. But the next week he came back, put it on the podium, and he looked strong. And at times through last season, he looked like he could have been a contender for race wins. Obviously, Catalonia was that real opportunity for him. He had, you know, he had that, he, he was closing in. He was right there battling for the win and obviously crashes. But what do you expect from Rossi this year? Do you think is, you know, like obviously you, you said earlier on that Dave's the old romantic looking for uh, the Rossi win at the at Assen or anything like that. But uh, what do you think? Can Rossi win a race? I think we might have spoken about this before, Steve, but I see a parallel a little bit with Tony Cairoli in MXGP, um, a 35-year-old nine-time world champion, um, you know, 11 years now with uh, Red Bull KTM Factory Racing, uh, you know, still chasing you know, the oldest rider by, I think, four or five years in the premier class in motocross and still chasing that 10th title. Um there are parallels between the two. Both of them, you know, clearly don't need to race, uh, you know, wealthy beyond imagination. Um, and they're in it purely for the lifestyle and for the sense of competition. So I do wonder if Valentino is having a bit of a farewell year, uh, doing a bit of a Carmichael, Jeremy McGrath wave off to the sport. That's been such a, you know, a huge part of their lives. Uh, but you know, like Dave, I, I do believe he's going he's going to be competitive in a couple of places where he knows, you know, circuits like the back of his hand, uh, something you know like Hereth, something like Assen, you know. Uh, hopefully, we go there in two thousand and twenty-one, um, and some of the ones where he's 
previously been very strong, especially on the Yamaha in recent years, like Catalonia. So um, I don't I don't want to stick the knife in uh, because, you know, I'm a, a bit of a romantic as well. Uh, I, I'm not afraid to say it. You and I should hook up sometime, Dave. Um, <laughs> We're both married but, uh, men, uh, uh, Adam. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, hope, hopeful but not too optimistic is probably my summary. What about you, Steve? What do you think? I think for me, it's it, like at the end of the day, after Rath won last year, I was like everyone else. I was writing Rossi off. And I thought, you know, that's it. He's not going to come back from this. It was such a horrendous weekend and there was nothing positive to take from it that I just thought, you know, he's on a farewell tour and then fair enough, there's no fans. So that might be enough to make him want to come back for another year. Hopefully we get fans back this year. But in the space of a week, it all changed. And, you know, he's still got that flash. He's still, like we've talked about it on the pod before, he's still one of the top 10, 11 riders in the world. He still deserves his place on the Grand Prix grid. And we talk all the time about how competitive MotoGP is right now, that obviously that means it's harder to win races, but it also means that we've seen riders just hit that bane of form and be able to win. And that could easily be what happens to Rossi. It's not like it used to be where, like, every winter I, I, I go and I do the classic races, and we're looking at it where there's a gap of, like, eight seconds on the grid. You're not finding eight seconds one week to the next, but you can find, you know, a couple of tenths. And suddenly, if you find those couple of tenths, you're right there. You're in with a shout of being able to win. You know, Rossi's going to have those couple of occasions through the year when he's got the bike as he needs it, when he's fast enough. And then it's just down to him. Does he still have it in him to be able to win? And, you know, it could easily happen. It could easily not happen as well. And that's the kind of joy of what we have right now in MotoGP, where you can look at almost all those top riders and you can say, yeah, Jack Miller should win races this year. I, I'd, I'd put money on it. I'd put Tanner down. Jack's going to win two, three, four races because you look at it and you'll say, did Ducati strong enough to do it? Jack's obviously got his experience. He's got the right mentality. He's got this. He's got that. But you also wouldn't be surprised if we get to the end of the season and Jack's had a lot of podiums, but maybe not a win. And you know, Rossi could be the exact opposite of that. He might be able to pick up a win or two wins, but he may not be able to pick up 10 podiums. And I think that's what's going to be the big interesting thing for me with Rossi this year. The big difference this year, I think, is that um, uh, the problem with the Yamaha last year, especially the 2020 Yamaha, the new Yamaha, was that it wouldn't turn properly. Uh, so the bike wouldn't turn once you release the brakes. You'd, you know, you break into the corner, release the brakes, and it wouldn't turn. And obviously that has been uh, such a key part of, Valentino Rossi's riding style through the years, his ability to get to to be fast through the corners, um, and if, as Yamaha says, as everyone around Yamaha says, they've solved this problem with with turning the with the bike turning by looking at the 2019 bike, then I think we've got a very different proposition. Then I think we have got. Um, uh, you know, suddenly a bike, or suddenly a um, suddenly Valentino Rossi looking a lot more competitive. Suddenly Fabio Quartararo looking a lot more competitive in a lot more places. Uh, the 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 championship suddenly looks like a very different, uh, like a very different beast. The frustrating thing is, is that we probably won't know for a good half a season, you know, or less, uh, where the Yamaha is. I mean, Lynn Jarvis, it could be a bit of hopeful optimism or, or gamesmanship. Uh, when he was speaking to us, he was saying, you know, the Yamaha have done their homework over the winter. They've made progress, uh, you know, with, with the chassis changes that they've implemented. So, 
you know, uh, let's see if, if, if Rossi does have the package to get the job done. But I mean, I think nicely that history could be on Rossi's side because the last time he was in MotoGP with a factory bike in a satellite team, he won the championship and it was right back at the beginning of his stint in you know the old 500cc class so uh history could uh, spin around again uh you really are the ultimate romantic if you're thinking in terms <laughs> of going back to those days for rossi but uh i think it's interesting for me that like obviously we got in questions from people about what we expect from rossi but one question came in and it was from uh Papa Pepe, who's one of our patrons, and he actually asked us who we think is the lead rider of Patronus. I think that's already been answered. So I'm going to change his question slightly. Who do we think is the lead Yamaha rider in 2021? Who do you expect it? I mean, uh, the logical thing would be for Maverick Vinales to be the lead Yamaha rider because he is um, the most experienced rider in the factory team. Um, Just not on the first lap, Dave. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, you know, as soon as if if Maverick Vinales qualifies on pole, and if Maverick Vinales can get away, sort of, you know, in in position one, two, or three, um, then he's he, he's a really good has a really good chance of winning a race. Uh, if, however, he fluffs his start um, or whatever, or uh, only qualifies in eighth, then you know you can you can write him off. But that doesn't really matter because I mean what is a lead rider what is the role of a lead rider that is to, to, to lead the development is to lead the direction of the bike um, and uh, you know Vinales and Quattararo both have uh, not entirely similar styles but th- th- they, th- their styles are similar enough uh, that they both want the bike to do the, the same thing they both want to be able to brake hard they both want to be able to um, uh, to push the bike through corners they both want to be able to use the corner speed so that's um you know they'll want they will want the same thing uh, and because the 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 2021 bike um will uh or the, the factory spec will be closer to the 2019 spec again then all of a sudden we do get a different um we, everything becomes different again because uh the, the uh, you know Franco Morbidelli can take more of a leading role in his in his championship as well. Um, uh, Franco Morbidelli can can then uh, have genuine input into the development process because the chassis are so much more similar, which is which was not the case in in, in 2020. Yeah, I, I just had a technical issue there. Obviously, we, we joked earlier on about you know the upgrades for this year for the Paddock Pass pod. It doesn't always work. When you get upgrades, I've just had a bit of an issue there. So, you know, it does show you that you have to be careful what you wish for. And, you know, I think for... for, for Steve, you're clearly the Aprilia of the podcast. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know if it's quite that bad, to be honest. But uh, what's interesting for me from what Pepe is talking about in terms of the lead rider at Patronus, and obviously I, I changed that to be the lead rider at Yamaha. It's who we expect at the end of the season to be their their front runner. And... On the basis of what we saw at the end of last year, I find it very hard to look past Franco. Obviously, we talked about you know how he approaches things and you know, the the mental side of things. He's obviously got to deal with the expectations of this season, but I find it very hard not to think of Franco as being the rider that I expect to be able to deal with the ebbs and flows a little bit better. Like Ad, you talked about it earlier on about how volatile. Uh, Fabio Quattararo can be at times you know like we see him whenever he has you know he's celebrating the cool down lap in FP1 
as if it's winning the championship. And that's great because it shows that emotion that he brings to the table. But it also, you know, it can be a bit of a detraction for him. And that's where it's going to be interesting to see how he evolves this year, considering especially that he's talked about he's working with a psychologist, he's trying different things. And I think that's what's going to be interesting for me. Yeah, he's still at the start of his journey. And I'll put money on the table now by saying that he's going to be walking away in 2021 with a new BMW for pole positions. Um, but, you know, who, who's the lead rider at Ducati? Who's the lead rider at KTM? Um, you know, a Honda, if you take Marquez out, who's going to be the lead rider there? It's, it's, it's really, you know, if you, if you kind of, that's the fantastic thing about MotoGP. If you look at it like that, then it's just so hard to pick things out. I mean, I think the only one you can do is Aprilia because they've only got one rider so far. Uh, so, you know, Alesh is obviously the clear, the, you know, the lead rider there, but um, until we get confirmation of that second saddle. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see. Yeah, but arguably, um, Mark Marquez has been the lead rider at Repsol Honda for ages, at, at, at Honda for ages, and he's built a bike which no one else could uh, could ride. And uh, in the year that he was away, the bike actually improved significantly and you know became a little bit easier to ride, uh, became more competitive for more riders. Um, and so maybe it's you know. Having a lead rider is not always a good thing. Uh, having a lead rider can, especially if you have a rider who is uh, able to do certain things, a bit like um, a bit like Casey Stoner at, at, at Ducati, where uh, you know he could ride the thing, and he was asking for things which would have worked for him, but um, was never going to be enough for the other Ducati riders. Yeah, and I think that's where you know it. As Ad said, it's quite interesting in GP at the moment because, you know, obviously we look at each of these shows where we've talked about the different manufacturers. We look at them in isolation. And uh, Ad, you pointed it out perfectly there when you said, you know, it's not that dissimilar at the other manufacturers. And I think that's what's going to be interesting to see how it transpires. And obviously we're on the door of testing. You know, by the time that uh, we record next week's show, we'll have had the first days of testing. That's whenever we're really able to start to see what we can expect for the coming year. And uh, you know, it does kind of bring us into into the end of the show as well, David, because we're going to have a quick mention about Moto2 and Moto3 because Moto2 and Moto3 teams are already out testing. There have been some private testing down in Spain and I think uh, Portimao as well for the American racing team. They're down there at the moment. So that season's starting to, to come off now as well. And obviously we mentioned about what we expect in Moto3 and Moto2 from the Patronus team. And I, I want to just ask you, about Darren Binder because when the launch was on, you tweeted that uh, you know he was the thing that you were most excited about for the Patronus launch. A little bit tongue in cheek, but you know Binder is an exciting prospect, and this is the the high pressure season. We saw what happened with Brad whenever he was in the must win now season. He came away with the championship in 2016. He hadn't won a Grand Prix up to that point, and then he went out and blitzed it. And you know Darren has to really follow that obviously he was able to win at the end of last year but he now really needs to be able to consistently win races and uh, try and win that championship but just before dave jumps in there isn't it more of a pressure year for john mcphee i mean if it's his last roll of the dice i mean you'd say the 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 onus is more on john and darren's got like a, a year really to emerge as a proper a regular grand prix winner but for me i think john's got obviously the pressure he has to win this championship but I think if you go up and down the pit lane and you ask team managers, you know, who do you see as being a prospective rider in Moto2, Moto GP going forward? Not many of them said John McPhee. 
And, you know, I, I've talked to team managers in the Superbike paddock as well, because obviously, you know, a super sport team will look at Moto3 riders and try and take them across, or, you know, a super bike team might look at uh, riders as well, because obviously, you know, we've had riders come across in recent years from those classes and have success. And not a lot of them say McPhee. And the reason for that is he stayed in the lightweight class for so long. So, yeah, there's pressure. McPhee has to win the championship. But if he doesn't, you know, there's not going to be that many Moto2 teams knocking on the door to be able to take him, regardless from what I've been able to gather from people. And that's you know, that's the unfortunate realities of how MotoGP is now, because people expect you to move up through the ranks. And they're looking at getting Moto2 riders to be able to you know, have a Moto3 rider, bring them through, and then on to GP. And I think McPhee might well be one of those riders that kind of falls between the cracks because he stayed in Moto3 for so long. Whereas the likes of Binder, he's looking at that upward trajectory of being able to keep getting top rides. He's had bad bikes in the past. He wants to make sure that you know Patronus is his stepping stone onto a good Moto2 bike and then onto the MotoGP grid. I think if John McPhee was you know, putting his hand in his heart, he's not expecting to be a MotoGP rider at the end of his career because you know, chances are the boats sailed on that. Binder, on the other hand, he's got a lot of pressure, has to live up to being Brad's brother as well. Brad, you know, by going in and winning in Brno, you know, set a very high bar for what people were expecting from him going forward. And like it or not, brothers are always compared to one another. And Binder's got a, you know, he's got big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Binder, I mean, Darren does have big, uh, big shoes to fill. But I think, like, um, like Adam says, he has he has a little bit of uh, sort of wiggle room precisely because um, there's going to be a lot of focus on John McPhee. John McPhee really does have to win now. Um, uh, Darren Binder has shown he can win a race, so he's already that is already one sort of tick mark. Um, and he's also shown that, uh, you know, he, he can be, he can qualify well, uh, he can put everything together when, when everything goes well. Um, I, I don't think he's in a, uh, in a must win situation. Um, but he has to, be, I mean, he has to, he doesn't have to win the championship, but he does have to look like he might be able to win the championship. If you see what I mean, he has to be in the fight. Um, and I, Honestly, I can't see him being, I can't see that not happening with him. Um, but we've seen quite a lot of movement between the classes and that has made, uh, sort of Moto3 uh, interesting, especially Moto2, uh, uh, interesting with so many Moto2 riders, uh, or, or with, you know, sort of almost the cream of last year's crop has moved up to, uh, has moved up to MotoGP this year. And, uh, that's left the field sort of quite wide open. Yeah. I think Dave, to, just for my perspective, like what I'd say about Binder is he follows that lineage that we've seen in Moto3, the likes of Cortese, Brad, Danny Kent, you know, riders that have had, you know, numerous years in the class and this is their time to win and they get onto the right bike and then they have to win. And if they don't, it's quite difficult for them to get back into those top bikes get themselves back onto the, the run to be able to win a championship. And that's where I think, you know, for Binder, at his age, with his experience, this must be his fifth, sixth year in Grand Prix, I think it was 2016 he came in. So so he, he's got that experience and now you need to make a count. Otherwise, you know, you have to rely on a bit like what happened with McPhee, where you get plucked into those top teams 
a little bit later, despite having sort of fallen down into you know a couple of bad teams. McPhee's obviously had some bad luck with his teams at different times in the past. And I think that's where the pressure comes for a rider to really capitalize on what could be that you know golden ticket, especially whenever there's the chance to move up into the Moto2 class. And Dave, you mentioned it there about the Moto2 riders moving on to MotoGP, obviously the likes of Bastianini stepping up as the champion, Jorge Martin's gone as well. So there are openings in that class. And that's where you know the likes of Jake Dixon, we saw him have those few really good races at the end of last season before he broke his wrist. And now is the time for him to really show that he can step up. Obviously, he's got experience of winning superbike races in BSB. He's had a wild card in World Superbikes. He's had you know a year in Moto2. So now really is when we get that proper test. Sorry, two years in Moto2. So now is whenever we really need to see him step up and uh, you know get those podiums. Because you know he showed that last year at Le Mans, especially. You know, he was crashed out of the lead. So he's got the speed, and now it's about trying to maximise everything. So another thing about Binder is he's chopping from the KTM to the Honda. Um, and maybe it's a much of a muchness, but I mean he's been on the KTM for the last four years and finally delivered a win. So that's another question mark over how he gets on this year. Whereas John, of course, has that experience. But um, Dave, going to talk about Jake Dixon. Lots of exciting potential there. At the very, very, very least, because he's one of the rare and few Brits in the world championship. So I think there's um, a little bit more spotlight on him for, for that factor. Yeah, this, I mean, Moto2 looks really interesting because you have Sam Lowe's, uh, I mean, Sam Lowe's has to um, be uh, not so much the favourite, but, but <laughs> yeah, he, he, he has to be the... Uh, he has to be trying to win the championship. He must be, he's, if you like, he's the man to beat for the championship. Whoever wins the championship will have to beat Sam Lowe's. Um, we saw what he was capable of last year. He made a big step. I felt last year. I was quite impressed. Uh, Jake Zick Dixon made a big step. Uh, Joe Roberts, I spoke to Joe Roberts earlier this week and Joe Roberts was saying that, um, he felt last year, uh, because, you know, now is with Ital Trance is with a team which has a lot more uh, data. Last year was with American Racing. American Racing switched from KTM to Calex and so they, uh, they didn't have uh, the data everywhere. And there were some tracks where they turned up where um, the setup was not quite, per- you know, it, it wasn't right, right from the beginning. And they spent the, the whole sort of weekend chasing their tails and that ended up costing them uh, being competitive. But there are other places where they turned up and it worked and he was fast. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see Joe Roberts on that Israel trans bike. Uh, I think that makes him um, uh, more competitive. Obviously, Cameron Bobier is coming in just uh, as an American uh, uh, perspective. That it's going to be interesting seeing him. Albert Arenas moving up. Uh, you know, Marco Bezecchi has to win really this year. Remy Gardner. I'm really, really excited about seeing Remy Gardner uh, uh, on that um, uh, IO uh, uh, on that IO bike. Um, uh, yeah. Arbolino as well yeah Arbolino there's genuinely there's a, there's a lot of um, there there's a really interesting mixture of really talented young riders coming into the class plus riders who are either switching teams or in their sort of second or third year on a uh, uh, on a good bike and who are about to come good so yeah I, I, I really think Moto2 could be quite good this year yeah and I think for me definitely Dave, like as you said there the top riders from the class last year you know a lot of them moved on to MotoGP 
And that's where, you know, it's quite good that you do keep someone like Sam in the class because we know what he can do. He's been racing in, in Grand Prix since 2015, 2014. So lots of experience. He's won a lot of races. He's been able to fight at the front a lot. So we've got that yardstick with which to judge everyone else by. I think, like you said, Sam's going to start the season as the title favourite. But there's a lot of riders to come through. I'm excited to see what happens with Joe, particularly if the problems that we saw were inherent within American racing and not with Joe, because there was a lot of low grip tracks last year where Joe was unbelievable. And whenever we went to the grippier tracks, he really struggled. Was that down to the setting they were using, or is it down to Joe's riding style? When you've got limited data about a rider, it's tough to make those judgments. Obviously, you know, Joe's had a couple of years in the class, but you know, his first year was really tough. He was in a, a really bad situation with a team that was you know, really struggling. So last year we saw a lot more of what he could do. And that's what will be interesting to see how he progresses this year with a top team. I always think, um, you know, anybody listening to this podcast who, you know, is, is, a, is a fan of Grand Prix racing and the three classes, go to MotoGP.com and bring up the Moto2 riders page and just flick through the names that are there and, you know, what some of those names have achieved and try and predict a top three because it's it's pretty scary, the the amount of talent that's on show there. I mean, while Moto3, I think, has uh, an, an overflux of, of new and very young riders coming up, Moto2 is just scary. I mean, you know, I really hand on heart. I hope Sam can close the deal this year, but some of the, the opposition he's got there and some of the riders going into their sophomore or, you know, into potentially their third year. I mean, they, they are going to be maturing and hitting new heights as well. It's, it's I mean, people like Augusto Fernandez, um, you know, Lorenzo de la Porta. Um, I mean, usually you can rely on him for some bad body ink, but like, you know, somebody like Aaron Connect could, you know, spring a few surprises. So it's, you know, it's, it's go and have a look at, just have a look at that page, guys, after this podcast. And, and you know, it, it's enough to make you want to rub your hands because it's going to be good stuff. Yeah, it's also going to make you run away from the betting stops because <laughs> it is it is tough to call. And I think I'd like you pick two of the names out of, out of your hat there that are the two that I think are really interesting. Delaporte is a world champion. You know, he's one of those riders, like I said, you know, in his Moto3 career, you get to that point where you have to get the results. He got the results. He moved on to Moto2, had a miserable year last year. But we know the talent's there. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can make any sort of progress Fernandez, we saw him win races. We saw him have pole positions. We know he's got that speed. He's with a top team, second year with the VDS team. His step is going to be really important to see what kind of progress he can make. And the problem with it is, is that even when you're super talented, world champions, it's tough in Moto2. And I think one of the best examples of that was actually Andrea Locatelli, because Locatelli left Moto2 as a broken man. You talk to people in the paddock, and it, no one was interested in him. And then suddenly he goes to Supersport and he reels off pretty much every dry race he won last year and walks away with the championship, breaks every record in the book. And suddenly he's a factory Yamaha superbike rider. You know, Locatelli, in all likelihood, isn't going to pull up any trees on a superbike this year because superbike is a bit like Moto2. It's incredibly competitive. And if you're inexperienced, it's tough to come in and make that big impact. But he shows that. You know, the talent is there all the way through the field. And that's the big challenge for everyone in Moto2 because you know it's a it's a it's a holding room for Moto GP. The top guys get into Moto GP, but it's also where world champions go for their careers to either stall 
or make the next step. And, you know, it's, it's tough for riders. It's not just a holding room, Steve. It's an extremely crowded room. And, you know, you're either, and it's a sign of how competitive it is that you're either there or you're nowhere. I mean, take a, somebody like Jorge Navarro or uh, Lorenzo Baldassari, you know, riders who are winning at the front regularly in 2019 and 2020. It was a, what happened? What was the story? So, uh, it's, you know, if I was considering a year in Moto 2, I'd be, I don't know, I'll be, uh, you know, queuing up with uh, Fabio's mental coach, I think, to try and get some edge because uh, it's going to be incredibly tough. I think I think Frankie Frankie's attitude may not suffice in Model 2 anymore, Dave. Uh, maybe it's exactly what you need because it is um, that sort of uh, calmness. Like uh, we were talking about, you know, how do you win a championship? You win a championship, uh, like a, a championship is 20 races over uh, eight months. It's not... Um, uh, you know, you don't win it. You don't win a championship on the f- in the first corner of the first lap of the first race, um, and it's being able to see that bigger picture. Uh, these are the things. These are, I think, are the lessons which Moto Two brings to Moto GP, and also precisely because the field is so close nowadays in um, in Moto GP. Having had that experience in Moto Two, where you know three tenths is the difference between starting on the second row and starting on the fifth or the sixth row. Um, having had that experience in Moto Two, it makes you focus on the on the details. It makes you. Um, understand the the importance of qualifying the importance of all of all of all of the parts of racing which go to make a which go and make a champion and i think um it is it, it's a it's moto 2 is a class where champions are made and where careers go to die and um really if you take a if you take a wrong turn if you don't if you don't learn a key lesson then you can really really make um uh, make some terrible mistakes and you can all go horribly wrong yeah, and I think they've just to take on what you were saying there as well, because I remember I was asking Sam about how he approached last year compared to previous years. And obviously he's worked with you know a mind coach in the past, but last year it really seemed to be that big step forward. And it was actually key to kind of take on board the kind of approach that uh, Morbidelli does seem to take to his racing. And what he was talking about in terms of was that one of the big lessons that he got from his 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 mental coach was actually that, you know, when you look at other sports, you can also pick up different things from different athletes. And, that, you know, one of the examples that he was given was obviously last year, Michael Jordan was a big, big thing because the last dance came out and everyone suddenly realized that the man makes runners. And, uh, you know, suddenly he, he became a massive entity again. And people were reminded of just how good of a basketball player he was. And one of the, things that Jordan talked about at different times in his career was the pressure that he was under to win the pressure he was under to perform and obviously whenever you've got championships and and you need to keep winning championships it's all about being able to find a way to do that and the big lesson that Jordan had one year I think it might have been the 94 season was that uh, he talked about the fact that he knew going into games he had to come out with 30 points and you know, thirty points sounds like a big number. Whenever you know, the team's putting up, you know, hundred points a game or whatever, you've got a lot of onus on you to be able to perform. And you know, it seemed like it was too big of a number for him to to make up on his own. And then he kind of looked at it and he said, "Oh well, actually, you know, over four quarters, that's you know, seven points a quarter, eight points a quarter. I have to come up with. That's only four baskets. You know, you throw in a couple of free throws. It's actually quite attainable for me 
to come up with 30 points. And it was this kind of approach that, you know, Sam's mental coach was actually trying to impart on him where you need to be able to break it down into the smaller things. You need to be able to look at it and say, you know, FP1, this is what you have to do. FP2, you need to make sure you get your long run in. You need to make sure that you qualify well. You need to make sure that you make a good start. And then as you put all those things together, that's where you can put together a championship challenge. And you know, that suddenly becomes a lot more attainable because it's only one thing you have to do. It's only, okay, I've checked that box. Now I move on to the next one. That's what has made Mark Marquez so uh, dominant through in this last period. Uh, if you think of 2015, 2015, the year that he lost was the year that he um, understood how to win a championship, the, 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 you know, that you don't have to win every race. Uh, and the things that his team do every race, every year, um, is just phenomenal because they figure out uh, another little detail of a particular practice session. The fact that he never throws soft tires in an FP1 and FP2, uh, rarely throws uh, soft tires in an FP3 because, um, he knows that he can, he can just bang out a fast lap without, without having to worry about it. So he gets, he's, he's essentially getting 20, 25 minutes more, of, um, uh, free practice rather than pre-qualifying per session, which means his bike, you know, he, he starts the race with a, uh, with a better setup. He's got uh, the, the, the whole thing has got, um, is all figured out. And like you say, that is built over an entire season. It's about looking at, um, okay, I don't need to be fastest this, uh, this, this session. I need to be champion at the end of the year. The whole thing is figured out in advance, step by step. I'll tell you what, Dave, that is nothing like how we approach the podcast, <laughs> podcast. But somehow we managed to get through to the end of an episode every week. Obviously, next week we're going to be able to talk about what we've seen from the Qatar test. And uh, we'll also you know, be able to see what new developments have come out in the bikes. And uh, obviously, we haven't talked much about it in the run up to the start of the season. But we'll also talk a little bit about Aprilia maybe next week. Ad, you're going to be excited about that. And uh, hopefully we're able to actually find out who the second rider is on that bike. Depends if your equipment works or not, Steve. Well, <laughs> let's wait and see. Big thank you, Dave, for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast. As always, Ad, good to have you on the show as well. What's the, what's the plan for the next week for you boys before we really get down into it with the Qatar test? Uh, for me, uh, goodness, quite a bit of copy to get through this week, and then next week uh, another bike launch. Actually, um, which one? Um, well, actually, uh, a Yamaha Tracer. All oh, right, so, and the, the yeah, smart feeling you were riding—that was the the, the four hundred one or something, which is the 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 the, the one two five. Ah, right, yeah, which was uh, very nice, a very handsome bike, a handsome motorcycle. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's a it's a work of art. It's a lovely thing, and uh, it's actually you get a bit of. Um, I mean, it's been so long since I've ridden a one two five. You get a bit of appreciation when you're on the road for putting corners together and actually carrying some momentum because otherwise the thing just, you know, you you suddenly hit a hell a hill and it, you know, it starts to die on you a little bit. You have to really uh, you know, watch your gearing, watch your revs. It's uh in a way it's kind of fun. It teaches you to ride again. It does. <laughs>
Uh, well, I am um, uh, over here in the United Kingdom, um, so I will be cooking for my mum, and um, I will be watching everything over that internet they have nowadays. Pretty similar to me, then. Just sit down and uh, try and get through the eight hours a day of the Qatar test by looking at live timing. Yeah, with, with, but with less barbecuing, Steve. Yeah, less barbecuing for you, but it's still cooking all the same, Dave. So big thank you, Dave and Adam, for joining us on the pod this week. Hopefully we'll have Neil back on the show next week as well. Big thank you to everyone for listening. Be sure to drop us some feedback at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter, and you can also uh, support us at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. So for myself, Steve English, from David Emmett, from Adam Wheeler, big thank you to everyone for listening to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Race. Top work. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. <laughs>